Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy, joined by a man who looks like he could have been chiselled by Henry Moore, Steve Walsh. Hello. More of a Michelangelo's David myself, but with uh, trousers on. <laughs> this week we've picked 12 statues in South London, and we're going to be talking about them. 10 of them, which we've agreed on, and then we've got one ambush statue each, which will come at the end. Stick around, because mine's great. I don't know, I can't talk for Steve's. Well, I've got. You said you were going to do an ambush one, so I said I'll do one as well. But because of the nature of the, the ambush. ambush, I've done two. Because if obviously I ambush Jack with the same one that he just ambushed me with, it's no ambush, is it? It's a, it's a parade ambush, isn't it? at that point. <laughs> and that's no point in that. Our website is southlandhardcore.com. We're also on Facebook.com/slash southlandhardcore, SLHC on Twitter and Instagram. If you're going to buy anything on Amazon, use our website first. If you're going to buy any of these statues, <laughs> go to, go to southlandhardcore.com, go through our Amazon link, you know, buy it now. Don't get involved in the biddy mm. war, because some of these can go up quite steep. We've got a couple of emperors, a few philanthropists, explorers, but Steve, we'll start with a sports star. If I tell you the statue is in Wimbledon, I'm pretty sure it'll be a... Andy Murray, of course. Andy Murray statue. No, <laughs> the last Englishman to win Wimbledon. Before Andy Murray. Oh, he's a Scotsman. Hey, no, but genuinely. <laughs> yeah. It's like with any of these stats. It's like Tottenham don't beat Chelsea for like 16 years. We beat them. And they go, right, Tottenham haven't beat Chelsea away in yeah. however many years. You just change the stat. It is called the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, though. So I think it is, at that point, it's fine to sort of distinguish between English, British and Scottish, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Fred Perry. And Fred Perry, he, he is... Uh... Such a, a rich name in English sporting folklore, isn't it? Beyond his achievements at Wimbledon and at other tennis tournaments, the the, the, the laurel wreath that is the logo of the Fred Perry brand that has become, you know, globally famous. Now, yeah, that it? assures that he remains a household name on top of kind of sporting uh, achievement, doesn't what it? What I'm saying is Andy Murray. Was, it was good to win Wimbledon, but what you need to do now is develop a global sports brand called Andy Murray, and then then well, we'll start talking about. I statues. don't know if it was it wasn't he doesn't wear it anymore, but Andy Murray was. Uh, used to wear Fred Perry, didn't yeah, he, he was. Yeah. I think he. I presume he did. He win the U.S. Open. He has won the U.S. He Open. Won, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he won the Grand Slam that he first Grand Slam he won. I think he was wearing Fred Perry at the time, so oh. it sort of tells its own story, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a good statue. He's swinging the tennis racket. Yeah, it's a bit small, isn't it? And that's the thing. With a lot of statues, uh, particularly of uh, sports stars, they do tend to go for the um, sort of nobly standing pose, which is obviously easier to do. You prefer the action shot. I like an action shot. This is, show me what he was famous for. I mean, not him selling a T-shirt. That would be rubbish. (laughs) That was probably one of the designs that they crossed out. Uh, What's he doing? He's taking a fiver and giving the guy a polo shirt. (laughs) I've got, I've got one of him playing tennis. Go with that one, because it's better. Obviously not from South London, from Stockport. But he, well, I mean, this is no, not South London either, but he lived in Ealing when he was a kid, didn't he? So he yeah, kind moved of to ended London up when, he was, London. when he was nine. Yeah. So he's, you know, London-based at least. It's a bronze statue. Why doesn't get, that get nicked, you know? Because it's in Wimbledon, yeah, isn't it? It's behind exactly. closed doors. Yeah. It's in a lawn tennis and croquet club, Steve. <laughs> is there... Um, I haven't done the research around this. I wonder if you have. Is there a similar bronze statue of England's most famous croquet player? I don't know who that is. I'm just wondering if there is. 
No, I think they've just knocked croquet on the head, haven't they? Just nothing to do with it at all? I don't think so. Take it out of the name, don't they? I think they have it in the logo, didn't they? A croquet. They do, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Potter, or whatever it's called. <laughs> Definitely Potter. Wedge. Cro- croquet bat. <laughs> <laughs> so he won Wimbledon from 1933 to 1936, and then as, you know, this is a trouble when you start reading about sports sort of pre-war. It's just ridiculous with the amateurism and professionalism. Yeah. He becomes professional and then doesn't. he's not allowed to play in Wimbledon anymore. I didn't realise that, you know, our greatest ever tennis player became a US citizen in 1938. I didn't realise that either. Drafted to the uh, US Air Force in 1942 for, for in the American Air Force in the war. Right. You know, he went out with Marlene Dietrich as well. No, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, found all these... Uh, Another one, Steve, right? 1929, Fred Perry was the world champion of table tennis. You, you'd imagine there'd be some crossover, but... Yeah, there was a... Uh, I mean, world champion? Yeah, exactly. Back in those days, I don't think like it had been discovered by like Korea and China quite yet. I don't know, I'm just guessing. But <laughs> You sound like Boris Johnson. Whiff-waff, isn't it? Whiff-waff <laughs> champion of the world. <laughs> You know he co-invented the sweatband as well, Steve? Yeah, someone... Well, did, someone, someone invented the sweatband, came to him, and then he worked on it with him, basically, didn't he? Wasn't it, I think... As a pro athlete. The, I, I mean, think the, the, the design that the person gave was essentially, it was a patch of sweatband on a wristband. Right. And, and he was I think like, Fred Perry was like, all, all the way around, because yeah. then you can like use the other side. And it was like, brilliant. A bit like with, um, with Predators, and who was the footballer? Craig, Craig... Johnson. Yeah, the Aussie guy. You've got to, exactly, you've got to get a pro involved, didn't you? But then again, if, if, when you look at Craig Johnson's original design for the Predator, it's quite rudimentary. They, I remember watching a documentary on it, and he sti- he rips um, the padding off a table tennis bat yeah. and stick that on the on the yeah. front of. I a... mean, that's not what the Predator became, is it? That's the no, but it was a start, wasn't it? Do you remember when they came out and everyone thought they were magic? Everyone thought it was like Billy's boots. You just get one, you can just like curl the ball. Did you ever see one. the um, April Fool's gag? With the headbands. Yeah, Julian yeah. Dix yeah, with his Predator yeah. headbands. So he threw curlers <laughs> off of his bonds. <laughs> Have you ever worn Predators? No, I had some um, Adidas football boots that were the same as Predators, but not Predators. Do you right. know what I mean? They kind of yeah, just yeah. Same design, but didn't have the... Yeah, yeah. yeah I've got them. Yeah, I can't curl the ball. Predators? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Right. They never revolutionised football the way that people thought, did they? No, I thought everyone was just going to be like banana shooting everything, yeah. but... Hot shot Hamish all over the place. Evidently not. Our second statue is also in Wimbledon, in currently in Canazaro Park. His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie I, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, king of kings of Ethiopia, elect of God. Although I imagine, Steve, you probably call him uh, Lij Tafara, because his <laughs> mama called him Lij Tafara. <laughs> as a child, Haile Selassie is known as Lij Tafari Makonan. Um, Lij meaning child. Tafari means one who is respected or feared. As an adult, he becomes Raz Tafari, Raz translating as head. And I thought it was Duke. Well, well it's, similar, it's a sort really, of an yeah, equivalent yeah. thing to Duke. So essentially, at that point, he is the Duke who is respected or feared. It's good, isn't it, as names go? I mean, you know, go with that. But then, of course, yeah, when he becomes emperor, he takes the name Haile Selassie. Haile meaning power of, and Selassie meaning trinity. The name means the power of the trinity. Good names, all of them, aren't they, really? Yeah, and not to mention the extra ones he gave himself. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is it. If, you, if you're like, uh, given name is 
Uh, as a child, I'm a child to be respected or feared. I'm an adult, so now I'm going to be a duke to be respected or feared. What about when you become emperor? Then I'll have the power of the trinity. Mm. I'll be the king of kings <laughs> of Ethiopia. Is he a descendant of the Queen of Sheba? Yeah, he's a descendant. Well, he's a descendant of the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Is that legit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is remarkable, and again, something I'd never realised before. I mean, when uh, he dies, it's the uh, and uh, again, it's something that never uh, occurred to me. When he dies in nineteen seventy four, that's the end of the Solomonic uh, dynasty, which is remarkable to sort of imagine that that survived until a year before I was born. Quite a long run, wasn't it? Not bad, not bad. Well done. He stayed in Wimbledon briefly, didn't he? He was exiled in 1936. Well, he left Ethiopia in 1936 uh, because Italy attempted to uh, invade and conquer Ethiopia. Um, was using um, various uh, forms of gas, as well as, obviously... Uh, an air force and an army that is it Mussolini? Yeah, yeah it's Mussolini. Yeah, um, basically trying to build an Italian empire. You know, it's a similar build up to the Second World War as it was to the First World War, where you've got countries just trying to grab imperial conquests around the world, and uh, of course Britain, who have a massive empire, and America whose very existence is based on people going over to another country and taking off people who live there, decide that this cannot be allowed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so he was here for five years when he, mostly in Bath and Fairfield House. Yeah. Um, but for, a, how long was he in Wimbledon? I think it's only a few months. He stayed with Hilda Seligman, yeah, who did the sculpture at the time. Obviously she, she died, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, he stays, on, uh, he stays in Lincoln House on Parkside. Uh, in Wimbledon. And the park that it's beside is Canazaro Park, where the bust can be seen today. This is well before Rastafarianism, isn't it? Which I didn't quite realise at the time. Well, it's it's almost around the same time. It's at this point. Um, it's, it's in the 30s that the Rastafari movement develops. And the idea is that, you know, he was uh, an incredibly important leader in Africa and was important in terms of pan-Africanism and helping the, the continent to develop. Um, and part of that involved him giving up imperial power and allowing democracy and you know new technologies to be um, allowed to develop in Ethiopia. Um, but yeah, he starts to be seen as a messianic figure and this religion of uh, Rastafarianism builds around him. Partly Marcus Garvey comments he made, yeah, sort of yeah. about um, an African ruler kind of emerging. And then as he kind of said that, Selassie kind of rose to prominence. Is yeah. that the idea? Yeah. Marcus Garvey obviously being uh, the reincarnation of John the Baptist. You know, that helps, doesn't it? Yeah, it's sort of cemented with a visit that Haile Selassie makes to Jamaica. And... I don't know if there's footage available, but reports yeah, at the time say that he he couldn't get off the plane. No, hundred thousand people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they just nineteen sixty six. They they sort of swarm around the plane to a point where there's nowhere for him to come down. Um, and you know, reports go on further to say as he comes down, eventually they clear enough space for him to come down from the plane. He waves, and uh, Rita Marley uh, swears that she has seen. 
stigmata on mm. Haile Selassie's hand and becomes converted to the cause of Rastafarianism and then converts her husband Bob to Rastafarianism. Bob Marley. Bob Marley. And uh, yeah, before you know it, we've got Iron Lion, Lion's Eye. Selassie never um, com- uh, denied or affirmed his divinity, apparently. I think I've seen quotes where he sort of he's quite reticent about it. He doesn't want to uh, be seen as divine, but he doesn't go. He, there's no full denial. I think he probably finds it quite useful. I've got a bit of a soft spot for Rastafarianism as a religion, Steve. As you can imagine, I do too, because it's one of those you can you can see the reasoning behind it, can't you? It's one of those things where people need to believe. Yeah, stolen from Africa. Yeah. Bob to America. <laughs> a fundamental part of Rastafarianism is smoking weed. Yeah. And I think a lot of religious experience really does need... You need to be intoxicated. <laughs> no, genuinely, though. Yeah. Like people talk about, like, kind of a walk with God or, uh, you know, even prayer, like talking to God. Yeah, You know, yeah. kind of feeling the spirit. Like, those things, if you're not intoxicated, you can't really do that. I kind of feel like... Being intoxicated really is a kind of way Rastafarianism has kind of got it right. The appeal I can see is, as you say, you're talking about people that were moved uh, as part of the slave trade around the world and oppressed and, you know, just endured horrible experiences. And I think it's it's quite easy to sort of imagine at that point a belief system emerging where they're like... Um, yeah, it's, it's okay though, because we're the chosen, we're the elect. This suffering is just the suffering of this earth and like our great reward. It's, it's a very simple basis for a lot of religions, isn't it? The idea that your earthly suffering will lead to a greater reward in the world beyond. So I can see the appeal for that point. As you say, uh, your brain cells being affected by uh, certain substances not going to hurt. It it's it's not, not going to you know, cause any problems there. Where there is a big Jamaican community in South London and has been for sort of, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Rastafarianism is obviously a part of that. I mean, I imagine, do you think we've got people listening who think all Jamaicans are Rastafarian? (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) But like, if you walk around, I went to Brixton yesterday, for example, and like, you'll see like, people in denim jackets with Selassie's face on the back. Like, his legacy is like, not his legacy, but, well, his legacy, yeah, of course, is like, very visible. I don't know a lot about Rastafarianism, you know, my part main... of it is wearing an Adidas tracksuit with a red, yellow, and green stripe. <laughs> gold. gold and green. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's yellow. Come on. <laughs> oh, so, I've never been so Babylon in my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, just uh, I've, uh, I've had no direct contact with Rastafarianism as a religion, but just walking through uh, Brixton View on many occasions, we've seen, you know, Rastafari baby rose. <laughs> and that's a religion I can get on board with. Do you know what I mean? This idea of. You know, we've got these... Yeah, you don't see the equivalent in Christianity. You don't get, like, Mary Baby Grows. I don't think so. I've never seen any. I mean, I've been to uh, Knock in Ireland, which is a, a shrine, and there's a lot there. Of, Gift shops and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. There's, like, a road, and it's just made it all sending exactly the same things. All these mm. sending, sending, sending you get the same things. thing in uh, Piccadilly Circus. Yeah, it's quite a common business it? model. Yeah. It got me thinking as well about St. Agnes Place, Steve. You know, in Kennerton. Yes. Um, where there used to be the Rastafarian temple. Do you ever uh, go there to buy weed? I didn't ever go there to buy weed, no. Grandma. Apparently that was where you were meant to go. Oh, right. But they got evicted in uh, about five years ago. For selling weed? 
Well, it, no, it was a squat. Like it was like quite oh. a kind of uh, I say famous a famous squat uh, no, for like yeah, thirty years. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, well, the thing is, I used to play um, football and rounders on Kennet and Park on the extension, and like you know, you could sort of, you can see it, it runs next to the park, St Agnes Place. And there, there was a Rastafarian temple there that was important, of cultural importance in you know to the community. Um, but like the whole, I think it was like almost a street of squats and had been for like thirty years. And then obviously it got to the point where all real estate in you know sort of fairly central London, inner London, um, was being developed or whatever. When people were kicked out, people were threatened with like thirty years of council tax. And I think it was talk like it was delayed a couple of years, but then eventually in two thousand and seven they just got everyone out. Or 2005, maybe. But they, like, they was they said that, yeah, it's just, they're just selling weed. Like, which, you know, it's not legal to sell yeah. weed for, religi- yeah. for religious reasons. But there was a kind of that element. But they were saying they were selling crack cocaine as well. But nobody was ever convicted. And nobody was, when they raided the place, nobody Nothing was, so it's just police lies, I imagine. Probably. It would be quite Cra- interesting. Crazy barleds. <laughs> I, um... Bob Marley apparently stayed there as well. I think. Or visited, at least. Did he play football on the extension against I've Danny heard, Baker? And... No, but I've heard that... Uh, I've heard that Bob Marley played football at Kenton Park before, though. Yeah. I heard a guy said he played with Bob Marley at uh, Kenton Park. That would make sense, because he was definitely in South London, because obviously he visited uh, your dad's school, didn't he? can't believe he considered it Babylon, though. <laughs> Zion, Steve. <laughs> if anything... It, I think it'd be quite interesting. I have no idea about sort of levels of Rastafarian numbers in London, but do you think it would have been affected by the rise of evangelical churches in South London over the last few years? I mean, well, they're, no, they're very yeah, African-based. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, Christianity is much bigger in Jamaica than Rastafarianism. Like right. Apparently, one to one percent. The official figure was one percent of Jamaicans were Rastafarian. Oh right. Yeah, it's just a tiny amount, really. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to Lakeisha's grandmother yesterday. And she just got back from Jamaica, and um, I said, um, "Are that like she lived in? She don't live there, so her mother still lives there in a little village. Like she's great grandmother. My child's great great grandmother lives in this little village in Jamaica, and." Yeah, I was saying, are there any Rastafarians in the village? And the Keisha was like, "No, nah, they're all in Kingston." And like, um, like Keisha's grandmother was like, "No, nah, they're everywhere," but it's, it's quite a small number compared to you know Christianity. Christianity right. is still the top religion. So Hilda Seligman carves the bust of Haile Selassie in 1936. It finds a home in Kanazaro Park in Wimbledon. Over the years, it deteriorates. It's you know made by a well-meaning amateur, so it's not it, it's stone. Yeah, so. it's very good, isn't it? But you can you can once I read it was an amateur, I did think, oh, I suppose you can tell. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, but and the fact that it's the kind of material as well. Yeah. I, I don't think it was designed to last for 50 years, which, uh, you know, well, longer. By 2005, um, it's seriously deteriorated. There's hairline cracks and whatnot. So Hilda's daughter-in-law, Nancy Joan Seligman, approaches the Friends of Canazaro Park to see if it could be refurbished. Merton Borough Council donate a £1,000, and the work's done. And there's a, a re-unveiling of uh, the bust. Uh, among those present were the Emperor's great-granddaughter, uh, Siga Mariam Asrate, his great-great-grandson, Alex Asrate Denya, members of the Seligman family and representatives of the London Rastafarian community. Because apparently it's become 
uh, a pilgrimage point for London's Rastafarians. I found a link to uh, a website from the London Rastafarian community with a report on the day. Um, I don't know. I'm going to read the first line. And <laughs> you can tell me whether this is a typo or not. And I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, October 22nd, 2005, saw the unveiling ceremony of the newly restored statue. <laughs> <laughs> Imperial Majesty Emperor Haile Selassie in Kanazawa Park. I don't know. Is it a typo? Is the guy just sort of thinking? Oh, that's great. But it is a thing where they could quite easily... That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, the unveiling ceremony was organised by the Friends of the Park, intended by the Senators of the Scotland's bus, also attended by... Uh, it's my great granddaughter and great grandson, and numerous Rastafari brethren and sistrons. Sistrons, I'd never heard of before. <laughs> no, I've not heard that. From all over London, as well as from local people. This was another line that eluded me. I did a bit of Googling, I think I've worked it out. After much reasoning, I and I yant ICs, and a blessed time was had by all. Yant, Y A N T, ICs, I S E S. You ever heard this before? I don't think so. I think it's praise and blessings. I sort right. of did various Googles and found various... Google Translate. English, <laughs> English, to, English to Rastafari. But I, yeah, I found uh, an incredible uh, site, which was a resource for Rastafarian women. And it had like a glossary of Rastafari terms. How to cook Itel foods. <laughs> Jar caused the sun to sign today after several days of rain. Give thanks and praise. Give thanks and praise to the Lord and I will feel all right. One love. <laughs> Steve's going to put a video on southlandhardcore.com. Um, it's just a YouTube video where it's a half an hour debate on the divinity of Haile Selassie. But it's just a really good video. And it starts off the guy, the, the host. It's called Devil's Advocate, the uh, show. Nice. The hosts is, don't agree with uh, Rastafarianism. And... He says that... Is it a UK production or...? No, I think it's Jamaican. Right. Well, they're all Jamaican in it. Yeah, okay, it seems right, to be. Yeah. Um, and date-wise? Um, 80s? 90s? 80s, I reckon. 80s, yeah. It looks 80s. Yeah, definitely no no, no later. Nice grain to the footage? At the beginning, right? Yeah. It comes... It's, it's a VHS rip. It comes up and says really? video calibration in capital letters. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a bit of a sucker for... Uh, other than like the date or whatever, yeah, for like VCR messages. So it was nice that the person had that <laughs> stuck on it. But yeah, the guy says um, that Ali Salasi used to feed his dogs from gold bowls. I don't know how true that is, and he used to pay. So he used to have an employee. Just, is that for or against his divinity? That's not, sure it's well, not he's saying, he's saying it's not. It's not. It doesn't. It's not compatible with the austere lifestyle of, of Rastafarians. Okay. He said that uh, Ali Salasi used to pay someone to come and bow to him every on the hour, every hour. So not bad. It's no surprise he was standing there in front of a hundred thousand Jamaicans, like waiting on the plane, going, like, "I'll come out in a minute." Let the tension build. <laughs> He's Led Zeppelin or something. <laughs> Another religion, I imagine you've got a soft spot for Steve. The Salvation Army. The Sally Army. Again, not an organisation I've never thought about a lot, and it's only really when you think about it that you go, "One odd name yeah. for a religious organisation. One odd setup." Because they have all got ranks, haven't they? They do actually literally yeah. see Yeah, I don't it know as... about the setup, but there is a kind of, you know, onward Christian soldiers yeah. marching as to war. But they so have a uniforms, of... don't they? That's the thing. And it's, it's, uh, it's a thing where growing up in South London, I seem to remember, obviously, 
you know, where we're going to be talking about is uh, the training college at Denmark Hill. Yeah. But there was also a Salvation Army uh, church just around the corner from me in Campbell. Yeah, and also at Elephant Castle, there's a huge building with like grey panels, That's right, like yeah. brownish panels yeah, and a load of glass. Towards, like yeah. massive. It's yeah, like a, yeah. not a skyscraper, but you know what I mean? No, it's yeah. huge and it's all Salvation Army, I think. I applied for a job there once. There's a Salvation Army church just up the road at Elephant Castle as well, like off of, um, by like Charlotte, Sharman School, Notre Dame, that way. And in Nunhead, there's um, there's a building like on Nunhead Green. It's like Salvation Army, I don't know if it's a church or whatever, but it's like a, quite a nice building and it's got an archway that, where it's got live and let live carved, carved into it, okay. which I think is quite nice. But yeah, it's a big, a bigger presence than because you never. Yeah, I don't think you really see them. The thing is, as as a kid, I do remember, and I think it was just the fact that there was a church literally around the corner from my house, very close, like five minutes away. So I would see them a lot. But and I think it's just that growing up with you go, yeah, these are people who do that. But it's only as an adult now, and looking back and examining, you go, this is an odd thing. This is yeah. you know very and you know similarly to what we're talking about uh, Rastafarianism, it's a thing where. Uh, members of the church dress a certain way. And I'm not really used to that. I'm from a lapsed Catholic background where there's plenty of dressing up among the clergy with robes. Yeah, with congregation where they're No, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a very odd... And as I say, it's just when you sort of sit back and go, the, the, the Salvation Army, they see it as, you know, spiritual warfare, I suppose is the, the term. Just and, a quick other link to... Um... Rastafarianism, yeah. Blood, 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 blood and fire. Isn't it? Do you think there's uh why have they ended up with the same slogan? I think it is that that's what you need to do to be evangelical. You go to extremes and you talk about um okay, you know the yeah, most yeah. glorious thing in heaven and the worst thing in hell. It's all about extremes, isn't mm. it? So it's always gonna be very sort of powerful, evocative language that's associated Plus with Plus you it. have to light your spliff, don't you? <laughs> yes, blood. And we've talked about the training college on the show before in terms of it as yeah, a, a, few a times, setting yeah. and, and uh, you know, as a remarkable uh, Was it feature like a on the landscape. 15-foot cross yeah, at the top? Yeah, you know? absolutely. And it never really occurred to me why it ended up in South London. So again, doing the research here about... And the statues we're talking about are of William and Catherine Booth, uh, the founders of the Salvation Army. Um, and their statues stand in front of the building itself. And they are, it seems like they are sort of mid, uh, not lecture, what are they called? Uh, sermon. Sermons. Yeah, it does feel like they're, they're preaching, doesn't it? The sermon the on the Mount teaching. of Denmark Hill. <laughs> so why is it in South London, Steve? Well, yeah, again, you, you do the research and you go, maybe they're from South London. So... I'm having a look, and William Booth was born in Snainton, Nottingham, in 1829. Catherine Booth is born Catherine Mumford in Ashford, Derbyshire, in 1829. Her family moved to Boston, uh, Lincolnshire, um, but then they later moved to Brixton. He, uh, William Booth, moves to London in 1849 to uh, find work and takes to uh, open-air evangelising at Kennington Common. So they're both, at this point, living um, and eventually join the Methodist Reformers around the same time uh, in 1851. And they're based around Clapham and Brixton. 
the pair of them, they meet at um, Edward Rabbit's house, which sounds uh, like something from a, a kid's uh, story. It sounds like a diner or something. <laughs> Ed Rabbit. We met Edward Rabbit. Um, yeah, uh, they meet at Edward Rabbit's house, um, I think in Clapham. Uh, fall in love, become engaged. They're married in 1855 at Stockwell Green Congregational Church. So he all... used to work in the pawnbrokers in Wolf Road. That's right. Yeah, he did his apprenticeship as a as a as a pawnbroker. So although these two people came from Nottingham and Derbyshire, they moved to South London, met in South London, married in South London, and at that point you go, all right, suddenly the proliferation of Salvation Army churches and this massive training college makes more sense. This is where they were based. So it's almost like, um, I don't know, I guess we can claim the Salvation Army for South London yeah. as, a, as a South London creation, as far as, I can, as far as I can understand. I mean, it's created by these two people and they're living in South London and, you know, based themselves in South London as they were it. Do you know at what point it became more predominantly a charity than a church? Because we're still both in it. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't. I have no idea about the workings. Like, what happens? I'm sure they do. You know, members of Salvation Army are they are they preachers? Well, I knew they... a kid when I was growing up, and his family. He was adopted actually, um, and his parents were in the Salvation, Salvation Army. Army. Right. Yeah, so, so I've I... never known anyone with any connection. See, it. no, I don't know. It's always struck me as slightly kind of culty. Which people might say is rich coming from me who went to an evangelical church five days a week. No, but it is. It, <laughs> but it, like. The dressing it, up, isn't the fact it? That, that is the thing that sets it aside. It was also, me. if you don't know anybody and you, like, you've never. You've, I've only ever met one person and he was a kid yeah. who was in the Salvation Army. It kind of suggests that they're not. They that. keep their own sort of thing. Yeah, which is odd for an evangelical. You know, well, no, you see him out and about singing and. Uh... Well, so you say. <laughs> well, no, as, you know, I'm saying when I say that, I'm, I'm talking about my childhood. I'm thinking of when I was a kid and seeing. Well, maybe you don't anymore. Maybe yeah. it was a bit of a decline. Um, in which case, uh, can we move into the training college because it's a brilliant spot, isn't it? Imagine living there. Yeah, that'd be good. It'd be man. great. Just did a podcast at the top of the uh, bell tower. <laughs> Obviously, not while it's ringing. <laughs> Mumford, she seems to be a bit of a pioneer for kind of female preachers. Because yeah, you know absolutely. that is not that's kind of anti-biblical. Like yeah, that was yeah. his reaction as well. Apparently, uh, William Booth. Like, yeah. When she started preaching, he was like, uh, "Hang on a minute, letting <laughs> women keep silent in the churches." But she just kind of persisted, and it you know it's very controversial, and it it led to Lord Shaftesbury saying uh, saying that William Booth was the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you're going for. It's it? just you start a... it. Kind of, I kind of understand kind of Christian sect, kind of uh, Christian infight, infighting in Christendom. But, you know, to call something else the Antichrist is kind of, worst it one, is the it? worst one. <laughs> I haven't read it, obviously, but William Booth wrote a book, which I think may be my second favourite book title of all time, In Darkest England and The Way Out. Not bad. It's great, isn't it? My favourite book title of all time is Irving Welsh. If you like school, you'll love work. <laughs> my favourite uh, book title of a book that hasn't been published yet is your autobiography, which we called... You don't know Jack. I mean, that's it. <laughs> They're good statues as well, aren't they? Yeah, they are, yeah. Nice details. There's a museum in there now as well, which we should have gone to, really, in advance of this, shouldn't we? But it's no, free. No, I think, I think we should do a whole other episode. I'm fascinated now by the Salvation Army. Yeah, I wonder if you can walk around, because that's a big complex. It reminds me of the village, you know that? Um, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. 
I doubt it's like that because you can see inside the ground from the bus. So <laughs> <laughs> you don't never see any kids sort of waving signs saying like "Get me out of it." Our next statue is no longer there. Yeah, it's been uh, melted down for bronze. Well, part of it has, and part of it survived. Right. Well, it's Alfred Sorter. Well, it's Alfred Salter that's gone, but the entire layout of the statue was Alfred sort of sat on a bench uh, by Thames Wall, and the other part of the statue was his daughter Joyce, a figure of his daughter Joyce, who died very young, uh, holding her cat, hmm. and that figure was leaning against the wall on the other side. So the idea was the only, and it's odd in most of the pictures, all you see is Alfred Salter sitting on a bench. Yeah. But the idea is he's Alfred Salter sitting on a bench, looking at his daughter who died as a child, and just enjoying a moment of happiness. It's, it's a beautiful image, really poignant. Making it, I mean, these people, you know, times are tough. We know that we're all broke. Mm. Don't go around stealing beautiful things. That yeah, you've got to, to draw public. a line, haven't you? Do you know what I mean? That's there's plenty like, of there's things one, to make. Shoplifting is one thing. Yeah, like shoplifting, that's basically fine, isn't it? If yeah. it's a chain, and then like then you get into kind of hazy areas. People of... go, there's no victimless crimes. There's loads of victimless mm. crimes, but I just think it's sad punching someone the... in the dark. <laughs> well, similarly, um, I was on the bus uh, going home one night, and it was after one of the Henry Moore statues was stolen um, in Dulwich Park, I think. And um, this kid was like three seats ahead with his mum, and uh, he, her, his mum was reading a, a newspaper, and it must have had a picture of the stolen statue in the newspaper. And he was like, "Oh, we saw that statue. I like that statue." And his mum went, um, "Oh, it's been stolen." And he was like, "Oh, you know, this is what you're doing. You're upsetting mm-hmm. kids, and that kid, you know." And that's only the second time you've told that story on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> so far, uh... <laughs> but. Yeah, I don't know. You know, even if uh, I mean, maybe a bit sort of high going, it's Alfred sort of looking at his daughter who died as a child. It's... Do you think the people stealing it at no, the but, moment when they were like, but oh, you know, should, it's we, should we melt I think the it, daughter down as well? It bothers me more that it's such a beautiful image as well. Yeah. Not just that they're stealing public art, but stealing such a poignant piece of public art. Fortunately, um, the, the statue of Joyce holding the cat survived, and that's been taken away and put in storage. There is a campaign ongoing to replace the statue and uh, put in... I mean, you know, they're talking about state-of-the-art security measures. I don't know what that's going to involve electric. I imagine, like, in movies where you have, like, a laser beam filled around it and if anyone goes near it to grab the Fabergé Some, egg... Yeah, someone's got to be dropped sort of statue, Covered in mirrors or something. Loads, like of, loads of noise, alarm goes off. Okay. It, uh, it's going to cost about 100 grand, is it? Yeah. Right. That, that's crazy. I know... I know it's it is a, it is a shame it's been stolen, but yeah. that got me thinking. Alfred Sorter, who was a philanthropist, and I'm sure you'll tell us all about him in a moment, Steve. Yeah, would he want a hundred grand no. spent on a statue? Absolutely not. And you know, don't spend. And I don't know. I think there's ways around it where don't use such expensive materials to make the statue. Yeah, Maybe there's it's no, not, it's not get necessary, nicks. is it? Yeah. Just make a really cheap statue. It's about the idea and the image, not necessarily mm. you know using very plush materials. I mean. The public only need to raise 50 grand because the council have said they'll match it. Because, well, listen, the council said they'll match it because they're not going to raise 50 grand. We're all broke. No one's got 50. uh, Yeah, I'd love there to be. That's what it was about. (laughs) I'd love this being I'd love it to be a Mary Seacole statue. But, you know, the days of uh, public subscription, you know, it's it's fallen into this idea of the trickle down 
nature of capitalism where you know rich people are going to actually pass their money around. They're not. They're holding on to it and spending it on terrible greedy, things. Greedy. Yeah. He's got a primary school named after him, though. And absolutely. And um, what's important is... Just, one, just for the record for future generations, I think I'd rather have the statue. Oh. <laughs> rather than the primary school. Well, maybe a statue in the He's got the road as well. We walked era. down Salter Road. Oh, we did, didn't uh, we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and he is. He's a huge presence in the area. And rightly so, because... You know his his work in Bermondsey, and this is what we'll, we'll talk about now, was so important for the area. He was um, a doctor, born in Greenwich, so he's um, the first South Londoner that we've talked about that's got a statue in South London. Um, studies medicine at Guy's Hospital and gets a very good position at Guy's Hospital, um, but then goes back to Bermondsey and becomes a GP not only becomes a GP, offers free medical help to people who can't afford to pay him, which, you know, many people have described it as essentially, he, he set up a, a very simple but effective health insurance scheme in the area locally, which is, essentially, you know, people describe it as the NHS before the NHS. And it wasn't just that. He, between him and uh, his wife Ada was also uh, a remarkably involved woman in the area. They, they were constantly working on education programs and beautification programs all about just taking this neglect this corner of south london that had been yeah. neglected by the government and forgotten about by a lot of people and so i know there are there are people living here that need help and were determined to help them themselves yeah notoriously poor wasn't it Bermondsey? absolutely yeah yeah he, so he starts he does what he can they do what they can as as individuals but decide that the most effective way that they're going to make change is through political office so they go into elections for local council and eventually general elections to become uh, a member of parliament. Yeah, he's on London County Council for a few years. In 1922, Ada is elected the first female mayor of Bermondsey, which means which means in the 1922 general election, he's nominated as a Labour candidate for Bermondsey West, secures over 7,000 votes, gets a majority of over 2,000, and his wife, as mayor of the borough, is the return officer who declares him elected. Which is a wonderful moment, isn't it? These two people that have dedicated their life to public work standing triumphant, you know, uh, on the stage. And, yeah, I don't know, it's a lovely little moment, I think. I suppose probably a year ago now, isn't it, went to that um, thing at the Welcome collection That's the right, Bermondsey yeah. health films yeah, when was yeah. that from was that from that was the time that was yeah was that, was, s- that was Salter essentially it was his all... legacy probably is it because he died in 1945 didn't he yeah so I can't remember exactly when that stuff was it was around that no, time some, was it? yeah some of it was directly uh, uh, talking about work that Ada and Alfred sort of done in the area I mean if you're able to find any of that stuff and put it on the website Steve no absolutely yeah. maybe it'd be on Pathway wouldn't it there'll be there'll certainly be something to put up mm. because as I say, their work was so important. It's still looked at today as a model for sort of, you know, local uh, social work. So Alfred Salter qualifies uh, at Guy's Hospital. Guy's Hospital, taking its name from Thomas Guy, its founder, who was born in 1664, the son of a lighterman, wharf owner and coal dealer in Southwark. So... We've got another South Londoner that has a statue 
in South London. Thomas Guy spends eight years as an apprentice to a bookseller and in 1668 opens his own bookstore in Lombard Street. It's about the same length of time as your bookselling apprenticeship, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, I haven't got my own bookshop now. This is the problem. That's the difference. You say that. So it's unlikely I'll be found in my own hospital. I mean, we don't know. He first sells badly printed Bibles that he's getting from England. So he starts to import them um, from the Netherlands, then gets the right to print them himself um, and becomes a publisher, uh, which is a pretty standard thing at the time for booksellers to sort of get a printing press out the back and produce their own stuff and just sell it. Vertical Yeah, absolutely. He is given a reputation as a miser because a rival bookseller uh, accuses him of paying uh, low wages and refusing to help charities. The Waterstones. I don't know if it's a response to that, but also, while this is going on, he's speculating on stock and eventually just coins it massively on the South Sea Company best known for its role in the South Sea bubble, where people, uh, you know, these bubbles occur from time to time, where people are like, this is only ever going to rise in value. Forgetting that this is not how value works. This is only ever going to get better. So people were speculating massively on uh, South Sea company stock on the basis that, it was basically just to double your money on a weekly basis. He cashed Did you out... mention this before then on the show? Yeah, we have talked about this. Because I'm sure you said like the, about the only person who made money on this. So were you talking about Thomas Guy at that point or someone else? I think it might have been Thomas Guy actually. Must have been, yeah. Yeah. So it's by seventeen twenty he's amassed this huge fortune. In seventeen oh four he'd become a governor of St Thomas's Hospital. And in seventeen oh seven, you know, he built some wards and supported the hospital. But obviously by seventeen twenty suddenly he's got a pile of cash. So rather than just build wards at St Thomas's and support the hospital, um, he opens Guy's Hospital in 1725, a cost of £18,793 and 16 shillings. So he spent um, the best part of 19 grand setting up the hospital. When he dies in his will, he leaves over £200,000 more to Guy's Hospital. Yeah, by 1734, um, his statue goes up. Again, it's a very good statue. He seems quite handsome. Yeah, the statue's out the front of Guy's Hospital, and it's a nice statue. Bronze, as most of these things are. But it's got a little fence around it to uh, put off marauders. And also... There's constant security at Exactly, a hospital, Pete, yeah. it's just like, you not you can't wait for the hospital to close to uh, nip hmm. the statue, can you? I mean, it's 24 hours. <laughs> When I went to the Lambeth Archive that time, Steve, what was the guy's name? Oh. It was a very short name, like Reg or Ron. Yeah. And he was very helpful, wasn't he? He was. Len. Len. He told me this great little anecdote about when Guy's Hospital, when St. Thomas's Hospital moved from um, London Bridge, because it was opposite. Yeah. Guy's and Thomas's Hospital, yeah. when it was uh, built, yeah. But I've forgotten it, man. <laughs> I, but I think I recorded it, so I might stick it at the end of. Uh... If you can dig it out, and, yeah. Uh, with our next statue, we're back to people who aren't born in South London or from South London. Um, Edward Alleyne was born in Bishopsgate in 1566, but like Guy's Hospital, has given his name to a South London institution, and in a way created 
the area of Dulwich that we know today developed the the area around there to such an extent that his influence seems uh, pervasive, doesn't it? If I said to you, Steve, prior to your research in 1617, which uh, school did Edward, Edward Alain found? Would you have said Alain's? Yeah. Well, it was Dulwich College. Yeah. <laughs> was Dulwich College originally called God's Gift College? So. Yeah, that was the college he founded, so I'm guessing that was the original name for Dulwich College. Um, but it was his gift. Is he trying to say, like, I am a god? <laughs> We're Madame Croissants. <laughs> um, Edward Alain made his name and his fortune initially as an actor. Very good actor as well, apparently. He played the title roles <laughs> in three of Christopher Marlowe's uh, major plays, Faustus, Tamburlaine, and The Jew of Malta. Um, goes, And this is where... You know, it's it's about owning the business, not just working in the business. Goes into business with his father-in-law, Philip Henslow, and they buy into the playhouses themselves. They vertically integration. <laughs> um, yeah, they invest in uh, theatres, uh, bear pits, brothels. You know, the things we've talked about as. The, that's sorry. That's horizontal immigration. <laughs> you get a bear pit and a brothel. <laughs> Um, but something I didn't realise about uh, Edward Alain was that, as well as being an actor and owning these theatres and obviously making his fortune there, he was also the master of the King's Games of Bears, Balls and Dogs, which meant that he would present uh, bear ball and dog fighting uh, to the King. Um, it's like he, a kind of uh, former day Vince McMahon. Pretty much so, yeah. And actually getting in the ring himself as well. Um, there's a report from John Stowe of how Alain baited a lion before James I in the Tower of London. Not bad, is it? And it's the thing you sort of go, it is like Vince McMahon. You're like, you own the business. You don't need to be baiting lions anymore. Pay someone to bait lions. I'll do it. I'm the best one at baiting lions. You're also Tamburlaine. I'm good at all these things. It's fine. Um, yeah, just becomes incredibly wealthy. So wealthy that he buys the Manor of Dulwich from uh, Sir Francis Carlton in 1605. Buys Dulwich. Essentially, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can't afford a flat in Dulwich. This guy's buying Dulwich. And when we talk about Dulwich, you know, this is the, the, the Manor of Dulwich at that time, which spreads up to what we think of as Crystal Palace now, the sort of top of Sydenham Hill, all the way down to... Uh, Denmark Hill and uh, to, know, the, to the, the edge of Booth yeah, the edge of Campbell Green. So you know, um, thirty-five grand he paid for that. It's not bad, is it? I mean, in today's money. <laughs> Did you know that the Ben Affleck character in um, Shakespeare in Love is Edward Alain? Yeah, you didn't, didn't realize. Yeah, oh, right, no, yeah. I mean, things I haven't seen Shakespeare in Love since two thousand or whatever. You see, at that time, I was living in Dulwich. And as I say, uh, the whole yeah. area is so branded. You can't, you know, obviously Alain School, but you've got Even Alain James Road. Allen, James Allen girls, Jags. I've heard people refer to it as James Alain's. <laughs> Erroneously. <laughs> but you've got Alain Road, Alain Court. There's so many There's so many roads around there that you've got a road just up by um, uh, Dulwich Library. Uh, Inella Road. Nyella Road. Which is Alain backwards. Cause that, and apparently the thing was... And that's only the second time you said that on the show. 
New listeners. <laughs> no. You also have Henslow Road, obviously. Um, well, that's his wife's maiden name, was that? Yeah, his wife's maiden name, obviously the name of his father-in-law, who's also his uh, business partner. So I don't know how much um, if Henslow himself would have invested in the uh, manor of Dulwich. But yeah, as you say, it's his wife's maiden name as well, so it's a nice thing to get a name out there. Where's the statue? It's at Elaine School. Just clocked here. I got married in Dulwich College, didn't I? You did, didn't you? Cheers, cheers Edward. <laughs> if any of your uh, descendants are listening. <laughs> Another man, born away from South London, but who moved to the area, invested in the area, and is now remembered in the area. Henry Tate. Got his name on stuff as well, hasn't he? Yeah, he's, his name's everywhere, and he? he doesn't have to worry about... You know, just be having a name on things in South London. He's uh, he's got that covered. Born in Chorley in Lancashire in eighteen nineteen. Chorley FM coming in your ears. <laughs> yeah, it would be that. Yeah. <laughs> um, moved to Liverpool to work as a grocer's apprentice in eighteen twenty five, and it's a similar thing to Thomas Guy. These apprenticeships are brilliant, aren't they? Because mm, like proper entrepreneur when he starts as not an like apprentice. one of your apprentice, uh, the apprentice <laughs> entrepreneurs <laughs> now. Yeah, starts as a phrase in eighteen twenty five, opens his own shop in eighteen thirty two, which is good. But he has six shops by eighteen fifty four. Just restlessly people, yeah, just never stop working. Um by eighteen fifty nine he's bought into a sugar refinery. Yeah, Tate and Lyle. I didn't realise he was the Tate from Tate and Lyle. Yeah, he's the Tate. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. much so, yeah. And the Lyle is Lyle Lovett. <laughs> So, yeah, buys a partnership in the sugar refinery in 1859. By 1861, realises this is where the action is. So, sells off his shops. By 1869, buys out the refinery. So, he's just like, coining in. 1872, his masterstroke. He purchases the patent from Eugene Langen, a German, for making sugar cubes. And the rest, as I say, is history. Yeah, I've never really gotten into sugar cubes. <laughs> You're not a horse. <laughs> no, and also, I don't have sugar in tea or coffee. No, me neither. My yeah. mum's never bought sugar cubes. Not economical, is it? It's. I mean, no, it's not. It just it? saves washing up with a spoon, I suppose, doesn't it? Because no, you still have to stir. I imagine it's portion control for uh, restaurants and cafes, isn't it? And That's horses. Thing. And horses. <laughs> That's just about Henry Tate. Yeah. Still, you know, when we're saying all this, he's still very much um, uh, an industrial magnet in the north of England. It's 1877 that he opens a refinery in Silvertown, in the East End, um, and starts to invest in the area. Was a big believer in helping his employees, so he sets up various sort of social clubs and uh, and whatnot. Yeah, which is a quite a common thing for industrial industrialists at the time. Makes his name... I mean, obviously, you know, Tate and Lowe is still a uh, brand name that we think of now. But arguably, a greater legacy um, is his decision in 1889 to donate 65 of his own paintings to the nation. Yeah. Uh, builds the... Is it called the Millbank Gallery? I think it's called... It's like the... National Gallery of Painting. It's got some. Old... No, no, that's in uh, Trafalgar Square. I, yeah. find, no, I think it was called the Millbank Gallery. Okay, yeah. I thought it had a, a different convoluted name, but becomes known as the Tate Gallery. And but yeah, he donated six. Well, he donated sixty-five paintings and eighty grand. Yeah, towards to the building of it. The, uh... But it seemed to me that he wasn't just 
inched in it to put his name on everything. Like it was only renamed the Tate Gallery in 1932 yeah. after he died. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, I said a Tate Modern. I mean, there's obviously well after his death, he ain't saying put make it. You know, <laughs> no, hundred years. Tate, if there's new art, Tate is a brand name in art now. That's the thing, mm. isn't it? There's you know, there's a publisher called Tate which publishes. Yeah, it's part of the same. Yeah, exactly. So and you know, again, that's not part of his uh, proviso at the time. Um, but the Millbank Gallery, it says on Wikipedia, they presented it to the nation, which I like that as a phrase. Yeah. Like, it's here good. you go. Yeah, have but, sixty-five paintings in the giant galleries, put other stuff in. Thanks, we will. Libraries. Well, this is the thing. This is where, as a South London podcast, our particular interest in Henry Tate comes in. He lives in Stretton Common, Park Hill, the house on Haunted Hill. Every time you walk by, you're back in the chill. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and while he's setting up uh, galleries and doing various other uh, charitable works, he provides for libraries in Streatham, Ballam, Vauxhall and Brixton. And he's commemorated with a bust outside Brixton Library in Windrush Square. I was on Lambeth's website yesterday and they described Brixton Library as something like a high street super library, which I think is why there are people in there eating Greg's. (laughs) <laughs> you know it would be great if, if Brixton Library Steve if they would put some labels on the shelves like non-fiction it's just like you go like okay right that's a musician okay right now we're into the film section I can see your point but I love same with bookshops I'll happily just wander around and find my own yeah work. I'm a busy man I know you are you got places to go and people say I, I, if I'm in a library or a bookshop it's usually in my leisure time and it's or, or I'm at work in which case I know where things are um, but yeah generally I quite enjoy and I quite enjoy particularly you know when you go in second hand bookshops I mean there's a big issue in second hand bookshops where they sort of go we're not even going to bother with the alphabet let alone anything else mm. but I quite enjoy that I quite, and I quite enjoy sort of decoding the shelves you know occasionally you go and you go there is a system and it's not immediately apparent you go oh they've gone for imprints they've gone for it they've gone <laughs> to they've put all the imprints in one place I mean famously. Uh, foils uh, before Waterstones opened up at Piccadilly uh, did have uh, the shop arranged by publisher and you'd find the book you went to one desk and they'd give you a token that you redeem at another desk and then they'd tell you where to find the book it was just uh, I remember going there once as a kid and it seemed particularly I was overwhelmed by the amount of books it's the number of books and also the fact you go that shelf is just all Haynes uh, automobile manuals. We'll keep those together. I think all shops keep Haynes automobile manuals they, together. They, they seem to have all of them ever. It was, oh right, yeah. yeah, yeah. As they just overwhelming in terms mm. of seeing them all in one place. I mean, yeah, that's not a crazy. I mean, you, if you go it. to Foils now, you just—it's like walking into a, a Waterstones a bit in it. I still think, not quite. Yeah, but do you know what I mean? It's not that experience we've just described. It has gone, but um, I still think Foils uh, has uh, good energy to it. Yeah, I like Waterstones, which is toxic. If you need any books, go to Amazon. Go via the South London Hardcore <laughs> website. Or if you need comics, go to Gosh. Thanks. One Berwick Street. He's buried in uh, West Norwood Cemetery. It's quite the uh, mausoleum, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Quite the structure. I thought it was... I don't know. I don't know if this is a thing. Uh, but I'll mention now and you can decide whether you think it's a thing. I thought it was interesting that his bust is in Windrush Square. And it's almost like this meeting of... The sugar trade, obviously, was synonymous with slavery. Yeah, it was Jamaica's biggest export, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's... So, you've got this odd sort of... Quite, yeah, that's where interesting. Where you've got a, a commemorative... 
and you know, I'm not saying he was a bad person, but he was clearly involved in a heinous industry. Yeah. And the fact that it's, it's now known as Windrush Square, and you're like, well, that was people choosing. Well, they've probably wider... not made that connection, but I think yeah, that is a legitimate I... connection there. Yeah, I think there is something there. There's a Selassie but... uh, statue there as well. Just to balance out the karma. Next is James Cook, Captain James Cook. His statue is at the old Royal Naval College in Greenwich. He was an explorer, navigator, cartographer, and a captain in the Royal Navy. The thing is, that's all well and good, but if you're a captain in the Royal Navy, cartography, navigation, exploration are sort of intrinsic, aren't they? You can't sort of go, no, you're a captain in the Royal Navy and you're not getting involved with maps. Yeah, but you're not navigating them, anywhere. Do they? Most captains in the navy, they're not like banging but out at maps this time, as well. No, I don't know. That seemed like a redundant sort of. There was a thing. I was like, you're putting navigation as a separate skill to being a captain in the uh, British Navy. I don't know. I'd expect him to have navigation skills. I wouldn't. Well, sort of he go... did. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, um, exceptional navigation skills. Um, and you're right in terms of the cartography. Does map previously uncharted areas. Um, makes voyages to parts of the world that haven't been, you know, traversed and recorded before. You know, the first recorded circumnavigation of New Zealand. Yeah. Was it the first voyage to Australia as well? I think he... Or the first voyage to Hawaii as well, no? I think he sort of um, went by and realised there was something there, but didn't actually... You wouldn't stop, would you... You know, all place. that way to Australia go, <laughs> oh, there seems to be some land there, just keep going. If we go left, we're not going left. <laughs> I'm navigating. Um, he's born in Middlesbrough, so again, it's another person um, who's not from South London. And arguably, you know, you can understand why the statue is in South London because of the location of the Royal Naval College. But his greatest achievements were, of course, intrinsically moving away from South London as much as possible. Moving <laughs> away from South London. <laughs> <laughs> and Great Britain in general. And, and indeed this hemisphere. It's an incredible time, isn't it? I feel like I should read some more books on the kind of, uh, what would you call it, the era of discovery. No, that's the wrong phrase in it altogether, but yeah, exploration. No, yeah. Like, um, say like it's a different time, but the new world. Yeah, you know the film, yeah, the charismatic yeah. film about the discovery of, or well, I suppose the early colonization of America. Yeah, it's just, I just, it. I don't know. I just, um, well, I just find so fascinating. In terms of, it, it's not just the actual voyages themselves; it's the science around it. it well, it's the fact that you think this is all that exists, and then suddenly you go out on a boat, and there's just these other people there in this other place. Like, have you ever read um, Guns, Germs, and Steel? No, but yeah. I mean, it's the premise of the book. It's quite a thick kind of popular science book. And the premise is how, you know, when the the Spanish went to, I don't know, the Incas or whoever, some uh, natives of the Americas, and they got there and they were on horses and everyone bowed down and, you know, they they took all these people's gold. Why did it not happen the other way around? Why did these people not get on a boat and come over here? Yeah. And... You know, rather, you know, this advancement, the advancement in technologies and all that kind of stuff was so different. Why was that the case? And the book just answers the question. Climate was a big thing, wasn't it? There's there's a number of factors, but partly, um, partly the the um, indigenous uh, foods, yeah, like the fertile crescent, yeah. um, you know, where that is like the Mediterranean, yeah. 
Like it was that's just that's what I was say more reliable harvest. That's what I mean by climate. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It, it, you, you've got a more stable area to work with in terms of uh, you've not got natural disasters, you've not got extremes of temperature, so you can yeah develop in a more stable manner. The fact that um, the axis of land is um, horizontal rather than vertical. That's probably not the word, is it? It's latitude and longitude, isn't it? In uh, the kind of Eurasian thing. So it's a lot easier to travel from Europe to Asia yeah. um, than it is to travel from North America to South America. Yeah. So when people travel, they exchanged, you know, germs, yeah. guns, germs, and still, you know, right. they exchanged, yeah, yeah, you know, technologies yeah. and stuff, you know, lang- understood different languages and stuff. But whereas this landmass was so separate, and there's stuff relating to the cattle that they had. But he comes at it saying... It's not racial. No. Like, there's obviously... uh, That was the idea, though, wasn't it? That was... uh, The idea at the time was, well, we've done this. Yeah, and you you can almost... You can see why people would think that at that point. Yeah, Like, the same with sub-Saharan Africa. You can't get past the Sahara. So everyone below below the Sahara is... You know, that's one group of people. Whereas these Eurasians have got this advantage of just going back and forth and, you know, all these... You know... But anyway, we've gone well off track. But Guns, Germs and Steel is, is amazing. It really just answers all, all its questions. And it's a fantastic book. Well, we haven't got wildly off track because this is what Cook is at the centre of. He's, mm. he's part of this movement to, to travel around the world and has the technology and has the, the knowledge in terms of things like diet and also has access to, uh, you know, as I say, scientific instruments that were uh, just not available to other people. There's also... Uh, not quite cultural things, but, you know, it was, you know, you're, you're talking about a time when people thought the earth is flat. If you reach the edge of the world, you fall off. So exploration is quite easy for us. You know, we, we were all, we were all, both of us in this room. And I imagine the majority of people listening were, were born into a world where we've been to the moon. Mm. So, you know, it's hard for us to imagine. And that's know, such Steve, a huge thing. That's not, I'm sure uh, my dad will be Absolutely, listening. yeah, no, it's true, yeah. So, but, hang on a minute, I remember watching that on the telly. <laughs> but you take my point, you know, mm. we uh, the idea of the world being flat and having a definite edge and ships falling off. But at this point, you don't know because no, no one's gone there. So uh, it took incredible sort of, I don't know, a certain type of personality to go, well, I'll, if we're going to have a look, I'll go. Yeah, to captain that voyage that goes yeah. to these places for the first time is is, is incredible. Like you say, Steve, it's uh, he's not he doesn't have strong South London links. He lived in Stepney or somewhere, but the idea is like you say, the Naval College, yeah. which is a stunning piece of architecture. If you see like a photo of it from the other side of the river, where you've got the two, um, I don't know, blocks, whatever you call them, like the two buildings with a kind of uh, space in the middle. And then behind that, you've got the hill with Grinner's Observatory on the top. UNESCO, uh, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation that um, regulates, I suppose, and kind of looks after places like Stonehenge, all the places with uh, cultural, scientific and uh, educational significance. They described it as the finest and most dramatically sighted architectural and landscape ensemble in the British Isles. The naval Greenwich, basically. And I presume they're including the observatory in that. But that's some compliment. No, absolutely. And I think it's important at this point to uh, say, in terms of us choosing these top ten statues, we're not necessarily picking it for the individuals, because as I say, there's some, some troubling backgrounds to some of these people's exploits. It's more the wider 
Yeah, the, the, wide, the wider significance yeah. in South London. So with Cook, you know, in terms of what he did as an individual, and he's, you know, as I say, not from South London or representative of South London, but it's the fact that his statue is there because the Naval College is there. The fact that the Naval College is there is something that we can be proud of. It is a beautiful thing. It's an important thing. It's, you know, it's a, a globally uh, recognised um, place of, of importance as well as natural beauty. It's good that you've said that, Steve, because the next person has got probably the least amount of links. I'm sure Absolutely. James Cook would have been to South London. There's yeah. no doubt about it. He would have gone to Rotherhithe, wouldn't he? Yeah. Got to boat uh, there occasionally yeah. or whatever. Gone to watch some bear fighting or something. Yuri Gagarin. No recorded visits to South London. No. I mean, He was a man who travelled. He, <laughs> he came to London... I couldn't find a date for it. He met Harold Miller yeah. now, Admiral T. And there's a website that gives you a full breakdown of his time in England. And I'm talking about like at one o'clock he was here, oh, right. at two o'clock he was here, like Russian, I suppose, in it. So it's probably in government documents. Yeah, yeah. Or would they have been released? I don't know. But yeah, he went, he didn't come to South London. He went like, he went to the pal- uh, Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen. You know, he went to Manchester for some reason. He was there for a while. Um, but staying in over the other side of the river, didn't come to South London at all. So this will be our only statue that we've picked of someone who never went to South London. Almost certainly, yeah. No, not almost. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, but still uh, valid, I think. And again, the reason for that will become apparent. But Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin. Alexevich. Yeah, better, isn't it? It's your Russian roots coming out <laughs> there. It just happens Um a Soviet pilot and cosmonaut. That's important, isn't it? Not Russian. He was Soviet. That was very important at the time. It what was. does the word Soviet mean? The Soviet is... I the, know what the Soviet Union is. Yeah. But what, what does the word Soviet have a meaning? It, it replaces nationality. The idea is that you're part of this union rather than you're from Russia or the Ukraine or you know any part, but you are Soviet. You're part of the collective. That's the important part of it. The first human to journey into outer space when his Vostok spacecraft completed an orbit of the Earth on the 12th of April, 1961. With the moon landing uh, eight years later, it seems, that is the legacy of the space race almost, isn't it? And although Yuri Gagarin is obviously a huge historical figure, I don't think that gets enough attention, really, that achievement. Absolutely. It's similar to what we're talking about with Cook. You know... People at during Cook's time believed the world's flat and the edge of the world and whatnot. And they'd sent up, obviously, animals into space, monkeys and dogs. So they knew, or they felt, that it was survivable. But, but there was no certainty, was no, there? No, absolutely not. And Next step aside, after a monkey, in it, a sender five foot two man. <laughs> and it is one of those things where, you know, um, cosmic radiation just... You know, and the re-entry and whatnot. It's, you know, an incredible uh, feat of bravado to sort of go, mm. yeah, put me in a rocket, fire me into space, I'll orbit the Earth, and then I'll land again. I'd, yeah. I wouldn't be um, 100% sure I'm doing it now. And I'm pretty sure we cracked it. You're just over five foot two, aren't you? <laughs> he died not long after. He died before they went on the moon, didn't he? 1968 died yeah. in a jet crash. Yeah. But when they went to the moon, you know, we... The space race, which is a great combination of words. Absolutely. But you kind of the kind of rival race part of it, you know, you kind of uh, it's easy to overlook the fact that these the actual astronauts slash cosmonauts 
from either side. They're sort of the kind of kindred. Do you oh, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And the greatest example of that is um, when Buzz. Oh, John was said like yeah. When Buzz Aldrin <laughs> and Neil Armstrong went to the moon, they put a medal um, with Gagarin on it on yeah. the moon. Yeah, like this is a pioneer, you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think there is going to be a uh, respect there that's going to cross any sort of nationalistic or, you know, conflicts between superpowers. The statue that we're talking about today was first unveiled outside the British Council's offices in 2011 for the 50th anniversary of his flight into space and was a gift from the Russian people. Yeah, that's nice of him. It's a beautiful statue as yeah, well. It's really a really nice, yeah. uh, interesting design, isn't it? Apparently, it's a copy of it's a copy of one outside a town called Lebertsky, just near Moscow, where Gagarin trained as a foundry worker. Hmm. I did my work experience at a foundry. Maybe one day. One day. They renamed his town, didn't they, after him? He's from some town beginning with G. <laughs> but like di- a different word and they renamed it Gagarin after him you would though wouldn't you I mean it is mm. you know. well there's no like Armstrong USA is there the statue was on the Mall, which uh, where did you say it was it's yeah sort of it's it's between the Mall and uh... but it's outside some agency where he spent a lot of time when he came for his visit yeah it's it's sort of behind Admiralty Arch which is where he met Harold McMillan when he, he came to London um I think the location was chosen part of that. And also, as I say, outside the the British Council, the British Council is uh, the agency that promotes Britain abroad. So it's a sort of a place uh, that has international uh, ties and links. Also, uh, there's a lot of space in front of it. And it's an area of rice with statues. In front of it, yeah. So, you know. But it's an area, uh, you know, if you think about the area around Trafalgar Square, the mall and... Uh, Whitehall, it's just all statues, isn't it? You can't trip in over them constantly. Yeah, and that's kind of what I feared a bit. When when we, when we you first said, let's do an episode on statues, your first thought, or my first thought, is all those statues up in Whitehall where it's just the same old style yeah. of like just some old war guy, you know, maybe on a horse, maybe one leg in the air, because that means he died in battle or whatever <laughs> it is. But the Gagarin statue is a perfect example of making a, a stylistic choice. No, absolutely. And, you know, I mean... Things have changed over, say, I don't know, last 15 years, maybe. Like, if you look at Trafalgar, um, if you look at Parliament Square now, say, like, the um, there's uh, Nelson Mandela yeah. and the guy who's the coat, his coat's blown up. Who's that? Oh, I know you mean. And there's also Churchill. And those are all, yeah. like, they've made stylistic, stylistic choices. choices. And they're all, yeah, yeah. all three of those are fantastic. That Churchill one's brilliant. The Churchill one's phenomenal, isn't it? It's and the like... one with the guy with, with his coat blown yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. He's got a, he's got a moustache and a goatee. People are quite uh, hard on the Nelson Mandela one. Because he's sort of... A lot of people aren't keen on the pose. Well, he's trying to hug. He's going out for a hug, isn't it? I don't know. Well, what... what? What people, do you people, do? people have compared it to a Thunderbirds puppet. It's cruel, <laughs> it's cruel but you can yeah, sort of... Yeah, I suppose. It's, it, it, it doesn't look like You look at Churchill, where it's just like a massive bronze yeah. moving down over you, and you're like, I'm not going to mess with this guy. It's now in Greenwich. 
Yeah, it's um, in a spot that apparently has become known as Gagarin Terrace. It was obviously unveiled at the time outside uh, the British Council, but it's re-unveiled at Greenwich. Um, Lord Sterling uh, is there, the Russian ambassador, Alexander Yakovenko. The director of the Kremlin Museums was there, which probably seems a bit uh, of a stretch, but um, that's uh, Eleanor Gagarin. Who's uh, oh. yeah, Yuri Gagarin's daughter? So, at first, it did seem a little tenuous that they'd put it in Greenwich, but I've read of three reasons why it's there, and it, they're actually great. Firstly, that Greenwich, you know, being maritime Greenwich at one point, was the start of many voyages Absolutely. to uh, faraway places. Secondly, that it's outside the observatory where yep. people would look at the stars historically and thirdly Greenwich meantime the meridian line is where the east and west hemispheres meet okay and Gagarin's voyage into space brought the east and the west together in a way yeah and he would have he he, you know orbiting the earth would have traversed both hemispheres yeah I can, as I say, once you're within... I imagine they probably came up with half of those after, <laughs> after they moved it. No, um, I, when I read that there was a statue of Yuri Gagarin in Greenwich by the observatory, I was like, yeah, that's, it didn't even occur to me that might not be the case. And when I found out it was somewhere else before, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you putting it outside the British Council? And you can sort of see the reason a bit. But I think it makes much more sense um, to be in South London. Also, uh, we're both big fans of space travel. So, you know, it's just... uh, And I say, a a, a beautiful piece as well. Another gift from the Russian people, but this time uh, a statue of a Russian who did visit South London, Peter the Great. Born in 1672, ruled the Sardom of Russia and later the Russian Empire from 1682 until his death undertook several successful wars to expand uh, his Sardom into an empire and almost sort of builds what we think of as the modern Russia as this superpower, this sort of huge expanse that um, dominates Eastern Europe. At the same time, led a cultural revolution that replaced a sort of medieval worldview and embraced new sciences, new technologies, new political ideas and you know moved things towards being involved in the heart of Europe. As part of that, in 1698 he visited London to learn about shipbuilding. I mean, this is the height of uh, the British empire building the british navy is recognized as the greatest in the world you know britannia rules the waves this is the place you go to find out how to build ships and within that if you're going to shipyards you go to deptford that's where the major shipyards were and the best ships were being built obviously he's the Tsar, so the british government takes an interest and gets involved in helping him find accommodation and uh, places to visit. John Evelyn offers his house in Deptford as a place for the Tsar and his friends to stay for a few months. 
and you'd imagine hilarity ensues. Well, you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd imagine uh, this uh, national leader comes to another country to study. Yeah. That it would be very sober, somber, and reflective. But instead, um, when Evelyn comes back to his house, he finds it essentially ruined. It's like Animal House, isn't it? His estate, his estate steward reported that Peter the Great's party, which was full of, and this is a quote, right nasty people. <laughs> um, How old is he at this point? Is Peter the Great? He is 26. Oh, right. Old enough to know better. I mean, what <laughs> are you doing? Um, the carpets were left filthy with grease and ink, and many paintings look as if they've been used for shooting targets. Locks and windows are broken. And every one of the 50 chairs in the house has vanished, presumably burnt on fires. <laughs> Don't. Just can't bother to go out and yeah. get wood. <laughs> just chuck <laughs> another smash chair. Smash out another chair. Yeah. There's another one over there. Um, a very keen gardener, John Evelyn was appalled by damage to his prized holly hedges, lovingly cared for over a 20 year period. Oh no. Apparently, uh, Peter the Great. Tsar of Russia and his friends had a game where uh, you had to push each other through the holly bushes in wheelbarrows. <laughs> he's supposed uh, to be learning about shipbuilding. I don't know how much shipbuilding he's learning at this point. Um, Sir Christopher Wren is the king's surveyor at this point. He goes down to the house and makes a report on the damage and he recommends that John Evelyn paid £350 in compensation. It's a remarkable statue as well. I mean, to, to follow on from his remarkable antics in South London. It's on Glacier Street in Deptford. And I think every other statue we've uh, talked about so far has been uh, attractive. It's been, you know, in proportion and very nice and decorative and respectful. The most fun one is the Gagarin one where he's sort of stepping into this... Uh, it looks like a, a sort of uh, Steve Ditko panel. It looks like he's just like travelling through some magical dimension, but still uh, great. Um, it's sculpted by a Russian called uh, Mikhail Chemeikin, but he just looks bizarre. It looks like his face is too small for his head. <laughs> and I was like, that's odd. And then I was like looking at the rest of the section. I was like, there's a lot going on there. So I was reading about it um, and I found a description of it. Uh, to the left of the Tsar statue is an ornate chair or throne. That's fine. Possibly a tribute to the 50 chairs that he uh, ruined in Deptford. <laughs> to the right is a statue uh, of a court dwarf holding a ship and a globe. And there is. There is a dwarf right. holding a ship and a globe. You know, that's odd. The original intention was to have several dwarfs burying their buttocks. I don't know why. <laughs> Again, I don't know whether it's... Because it's a gift from the Russian people. But I don't know whether it's the Russian people sort of going, do you remember when he wrecked the place and there wasn't nothing you could do about it? We might be right nasty people, but you're going to pay. Yeah, it's um, it's a very odd um, statue. Just before we move on to uh, our honourable mentions, we've got to pick each of other uh, odd statues in South London. I think we should address, again, our reasoning behind it isn't these are necessarily the best statues in South London. No, it would have had a Lawrence Olivier, wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's all, I think it's also only, only right that we address the fact that majority of our picks are dead white men yeah but we have gone for one 
woman. Absolutely. And one non-white man. Yes. And also... Who is also a deity. The problem is, obviously, if you look at statues in London generally, they're mostly dead white men. You know, we're, we're, we're still waiting for a Mary Seacole statue. Yeah. We mentioned the uh, statue in Stockwell. Um, we did. Of I can't remember. Is it called the Bronze Lady? Yeah. But it's of obviously yeah. a black lady. Yeah. But, you know, we were trying to stick to named people as well. Yeah. Which I think was... I haven't for my um, honourable mention. Haven't you? No. Have you? Uh, yeah, I have, okay, yeah. Well, in a way. This is going to be interesting. So yeah, that's uh, just to address that um, and explain our reason a little bit. Do you want to go with your... Uh, yeah. Number 11 or 10.5. <laughs> number or... one. <laughs> when we mentioned about statues, um, I started... I think I named something that was a sculpture rather than a statue. Although a statue obviously is a sculpture. Yeah. But it led me to me looking up the definition of a statue... Which might seem obvious, people might think I'm a bit thick to have to do that. But I think you're thorough. It has to be a person or people. Right. Or an animal. Right. Right. Which leads us to the brown dog. This is great because... That's what you've got as no, well. No, I had... Uh, I've got two... Uh, when Jack announced that he was going to do a random pick... Well, I'll do a random Not pick. random. A, no, a, no. One that I thought it would be better if I told you about it rather than... Us both reading about it. Do you know about the brown dog? No, I've never heard of it. That's great. Good. Because none of these other statues caused riots. <laughs> oh! Maybe I have heard of the brown dog. I'm sure it'll all come back to you. Yeah, yeah. Have we talked about it on the show before? No. No, okay. Well, you might have, have but we I don't remember listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want to you dive in with your one first, then, Steve? Well, I've got two because when you said you had one, I thought, well, I'd better get two just in case just in we case. pick the same one. So if you do your one, and I'll do my one, and I'll just mention uh, quickly uh, the other one. 1903, Steve. Vivisection is the hot topic. UCL, which is not in South London, University College London, is it's in Bloomsbury. It was it always been there, I presume, yeah? Yeah. A doctor performed what was considered to be an illegal dissection of a dog in front of an audience. A terrier, a brown terrier, that was inadequately anaesthetised. Um, so there were some Swedish students there who kind of seemed to just be getting into anti-vivisection, and the the National Anti-Vivisection Society deemed it illegal. The dog wasn't properly like there was sort of the dog was wailing and stuff. It sounds like a horrible scene. Yeah, like, I hate dogs. Right? Yeah, but some people wish... like dogs. Some people don't like dogs. I hate them. Yeah, I'm scared of them, and I hate them. A not fully anaesthetised dog being dissected yeah, yeah. is That's like not... just pretty grim, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Especially in a country that treats dogs better than humans. William Bayliss, who was the doctor, whose research on dogs led to the discovery of hormones. So that kind of leaves it a bit... Uh, yeah, you know, it does make it murky. Yeah. Because it's, it one those things... it's not just cruelty to animals. Yeah, like yeah. It's cruelty He's... to animals with like massive benefits yeah. for humans. Um, like His reputation was on the line here. And he went to court and sued for libel and won. I'm assuming he hasn't discovered hormones at this point. Otherwise, it's not that it's not an issue because don't be dissecting. Yeah, well, I think the thing is, it really it wasn't an adequately anaesthetised is the right. main problem. Yeah, yeah. The anti-vivisectionists were apparently quite rowdy in the... Uh... Theatre. Yeah, and uh, the Times described it as medical hooliganism. 
1906, this is three years later, but obviously vivisection is a hot topic in the news. I imagine news stories don't die away quite so quickly in those days. And it's also it's a bit of a cause célèbre. <laughs> Pronounce that right for me, Steve. Cause célèbre. I mean, there's two wrong uh, pronunciations. Choose your favourite. <laughs> Sanity vivisectionists commissioned the bronze statue three years later in Battersea. It unveiled in Battersea, which was not where the... I was going to say, it was happens. it a dog home? Battersea Dog's Home was there. Right. And also, Battersea Hospital was... Didn't... Uh, do vivisection okay like the the doctors there didn't uh, were against it apparently right. and it was known colloquially as the anti-viv the hospital was known as the anti-viv which right. seems a bit odd that that would come to define it but on this so they got this statue of this dog sort of standing there proudly with a inscription underneath it goes on quite a while but it says men and women of England how long shall these things be got vandalised a lot by what the what was called in those days anti-doggers <laughs> And uh, in 1907, so it's a year later, a thousand anti-doggers marched through central London, burning effigies of, of the dog, clashing with suffragettes and trade unionists and police. Uh, and like, you know, so it's, just... it's vivisectionists, suffragettes and yeah, trade unionists. Yeah, this is the thing. It became a bit of a, a, bit of a class thing right. where you've got all these university students. Like there's a kind of... they. Uh, they, I think at one point they started at the Oxford or Cambridge, can't remember which, rowing, uh, rugby club. Yeah. Like, which was in London. Like, so, like, they're all on one side. And on the other side, you've got the uh, the animal rights people. Yeah. Which it kind of, yeah, includes trade unionists for some reason. And the suffragette movement. Apparently a lot of the doctors that opposed vivisection in Battersea were, um, were women. Right. Which seems to be linked in somewhere. Apparently, Batsy Dog's Home as well. Like they had I'd vivid... imagine as well, just in terms of, you know, it's, it's never useful necessarily to uh, rank protest in terms of worthwhile causes. Mm. And I think there's an element here of uh, privilege checking as well. But if you think you need to protest for the right to chop up dogs as much as trade unions do for you know safe working conditions and women do to get the vote then you need to look at yourself don't you really this is not they're not equivalent causes are they no they're the not the suffragettes and trade unionists have genuine grievances that need to be uh you know addressed for us to be seen as a, a reasonable society you know i can see pros and cons uh of vivisection but you know don't march and think that you've got the same issues as someone that hasn't got the vote no, I mean, people went to extreme lengths. In no- November 1907, a group of UCL students went over, walked over the Thames, well, on a bridge, you know, um, <laughs> with a crowbar and a sledgehammer and tried to, uh, you know, smash it up. Ten of them were arrested. The next day, there's a massive demonstration against those, um, against the fact that those ten people have been fined, you know, right. by, by more students. And then, like, a month later, a couple of weeks later in December... 100 students go down, they try and pull the memorial down. So they were going to pull it down and throw it in the Thames. But then they ended up in, uh, they ended up in uh, another group of uh, protesters, ended up in Trafalgar Probably. Square. A thousand of them, in, no, of, of the students. Right. Um, one guy's arrested for barking like a dog. <laughs> a couple of days after that, in Acton Central Hall, there's a meeting of uh, anti-vivisectionists and suffragettes. And some 100 students get in. 
um, deteriorated into an exchange of chairs, fists and smoke bombs. Like, it comes up in the uh, House of Commons. You know, they're paying like 700 quid a year to su- for security. Then in 1909, a Conservative council comes into Battersea. Despite 1,500 people attending a rally to keep the... Uh, keep the dog statue wearing dog dog masks um in hyde park for their protest <laughs> you know they lose the battle and in 1910 um 120 120 police um uh, go for this removal of the statue like that's how many you know in case it all kicks police off love that, don't they? over time they, they do yeah Brilliant. and then the council uh melted down they hid it in a bike shed for a little while melted it down brown dogs no more well in 1985, a new memorial was made. Um, is the memorial to the original memorial or to the point before? It the seems to memorial? be to the original memorial, right. right? But the new one, like the British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection and the National Anti Vivisection Society, don't know why you need two of these groups. <laughs> they, they commissioned this new statue, which is in uh, Batsy Park now. But. The, what it is, it's a different dog. It's a completely different statue. Where the first dog is kind of standing there proud, the new one is kind of... It's just a guy's pet, just kind of whimpering, like right. kind of like with his head down. Oh, yeah. Sorry, it's a woman. The sculptures, sculptures with a woman. So two brown dogs is what we're talking about. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. And the new one is a pale imitation of the first. <laughs> but yeah, none of these other statues called anything like that controversy, did they? No, it's just true. Um... My my uh, bonus pick. Yeah, my pick that I'm going to go for uh, hasn't caused any controversy. It should because it is a remarkable piece of work. Just a, a quick side note for my sub pick, which is the one I thought you'd gone for, which is Guide a Gorilla. Because our original uh, our rules for the the ten were it had to be named people. So for my other picks, I was like, okay, so they don't name people. And I was like, it doesn't have to be people. So I, I was sort of on to you, yeah. the animal pick. Um, Drayhorse, Jacob the Drayhorse. <laughs> um, yeah, Guy the Gorilla. Um, there's a statue. Do you know Guy the Gorilla? No. He was a very famous gorilla. Thomas Guy the Gorilla. <laughs> yeah, he's got a hospital named after him. Um, I mean, in my research, I'll go over this very quickly because it's not even the, the statue I want to talk about. But, and you know, when I say research, it's on Wikipedia. But as far as I can tell, the correct scientific terminology for a Western lowland gorilla is gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. You know, like, it's like classifications within. Okay. But it seems like it's just pure gorilla all the way for this guy. I don't know. Guy the Gorilla was a gorilla who uh, stayed in London Zoo uh, for a long time. He was, he, he was. I'm old enough to sort of remember him as being a thing. You know, he'd be like referenced in comics and uh, talked about on like kids TV shows. Um, he was called Guy the Gorilla because he arrived on the 5th of November 1947. Mm-hmm. Guy Fawkes. Yeah. Um, you'll like this. Um, he became uh, very popular. Um, he had a habit of, if birds flew into his area, he'd um, pick them up and just oh, right. look at them. Yeah, he was like... Well, fa- definitely wearing a guy in a gorilla suit. <laughs> well, th- this is uh, what happens next. He was, so he was famous for his, uh, his gentle nature and was very popular with kids. Um, in 1968, during pre-production for the film 2001, Dan Richter, who played the lead ape man, Moonwatcher, studied Guy intently and modelled his performance oh, on uh, Guy the Gorilla. There's a Guy the Gorilla statue outside London Zoo, 
And when I read about this one, which is in Crystal Palace Park, I was like, oh, they moved the Guy Gorilla statue from London Zoo to Crystal Palace Park. Yeah. That's odd. Why would they move it away from London Zoo? They haven't. The one at London Zoo is still there. The one in Crystal Palace Park was made by an amateur sculpture. Um, oh. Yeah, David Wynn in 1961. The fact that Guy the Gorilla died in 1978, so the fact that, you know, in 1961, people all over London are going, we need a Guy the Gorilla. I can only imagine Crystal Palace Park because of the greenery, you know. Well, there's dinosaurs there, isn't there? Uh, absolutely, and the history of stone yeah, animals. Having, yeah, uh, animals there. Um, it's a marble statue, yeah. Uh, it, it looks, considering it's done by an amateur sculptor, um, it's pretty decent. Well, I mean, so, you could say we're amateur podcasters. This is true. If still, still listening things. after like seventy minutes <laughs> of statue talk. So that was that was what I thought you'd picked. I, I was like, oh, I see. He's found Guy the Gorilla in Crystal Palace oh, no. Park, and he thinks he's going to. Uh, and you did. You still managed to. Uh, me. So I'll talk about my genuine pick now, yeah. which is a statue called the Sunbeam Weekly and the Pilgrim's Pocket. Right. Uh, made in 1991 by Peter McLean. Uh, it's in Rotherhive. Um, I'm going to describe the statue to you. Because, Please and, do, because I've never seen it. And you'll, you'll, you'll look it up afterwards, because you, A, you won't believe that I'm telling the truth, and B, I don't know how I'm going to describe this in the way that you'll get a, an adequate visual representation. The statue depicts a boy from the 1930s reading a comic... Uncle Pete and Kev's Sunbeam Weekly, which is supposed to be like an American comic from the 30s. Yeah. And he's reading in the comic the story of the Pilgrim Fathers. We can see this on the statue. Apparently. I've not seen this actually in real life. I've only seen photographs and you can't see it all. So, you've got that vision in your mind. Yeah. 1930s boy, reading comic. Behind him stands the spirit of the Pilgrim Fathers turning the pages of the comic. He seems surprised to see what the future holds. The boy is clearly interested in the new world. He is wearing a sheriff's badge. <laughs> the pilgrim's coat pocket is brimming with things. It contains a book entitled 1620 A to Z. A crucifix, a fish, a lobster, a button, and something that looks like silverware. All sticking work. out of his pocket? Apparently, yeah. This is like... How could you have a button sticking out of your pocket? <laughs> the accompanying notice board says a bronze pocket has been fashioned into the pilgrim's coat and it is said that any visitor from the new world who places a small object therein We'll find a new and more rewarding path in life. This is an allusion to the Mayflower setting sail from Robert The significance Hive, of the Pilgrim Fathers in the is that the Mayflower set from Robert Hive in 1620. Um, so obviously, while this is going on, you, that's pretty busy already, isn't it? A Staffordshire Bull Terrier is jumping up as if to join in the reading. So you've got a boy reading the comic from the 1930s. This was made in 1991. That's the important thing to remember. A boy from the 1930s is reading an American comic. And the spirit of the Pilgrim Fathers is going shoulder going, what's going to happen? <laughs> While also having uh, a pocket full of just odd things and a dog wants to get involved as well. Peter McLean, you know, fair play. He, <laughs> he, he, he did not rest, did he, on that one? I've got an idea for a statue. Yeah, I've got loads. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got? Well, I've got uh, Boy Reading the Comic, uh, Pilgrim. What else have you uh, got? Dog Jumping. You ain't got space for one. I'll do it all. Watch this. Is there anything in his pocket? <laughs> He's there. <laughs> if you go to southrunhardcore.com, click map. Hopefully, Steve would have updated it so that you can see where all these statues are on the map. I'll also be doing blog posts. If only just to let people see. I'll try and find video footage as well where, where suitable, obviously, um, 
the Haile Selassie divinity debate uh, will definitely be going up. I'll also put up a picture of the Sunbeam Weekly and uh, the Pilgrim's Pocket, just because, again, you know, people I can't expect people to believe that exists without uh, photographic evidence. Basically, right, St Thomas's Hospital started as, you know, Guy, is it Thomas Guy? Thomas Guy, yeah. He was a trustee of St Thomas's Hospital. Yeah. Um, it started as an infirmary in uh, in Southwark Cathedral. Oh, right. Yeah, um, and like it was a monastic institution, he said. Like, this guy was just bang, everything I was getting, like, you know, and in the 18th, he gave me years, I didn't write it down. Um, came on the show, didn't it? <laughs> Len. Came on the show, Len, yeah. Episode 62. <laughs> Len. Typo, they're, no, no, just Len. Len Holmes. <laughs> it moved over the road or something. It's on Borough High Street or Borough Road or something. And um, Guy was like, "It's not enough." You know, so he built another yeah. hospital. And then when they built the extent, the railway extension from London Bridge to Charing Cross, right? So the one that goes along there and then uh, past the Menia, you know, Waterloo yeah. Water East and that. Um, the St Thomas's, they said, like they kind of engineered that. They said, like if you cause any disruption. If this is going to cause any disruption to the hospital, you're going to need to move us to a new premises. And they basically, like, and they knowing it would cause disruption. Yeah, yeah. So they got the railway. I don't know if the railway people paid for it or the government or whatever, but they basically got them to build that new hospital opposite uh, House of Parliament. They were like, you know, like they saw this thing coming like, right, we're going to need to. A bit like with Waterstones with Crossrail, right? You know, yeah, 1923 yeah. Oxford Street. Yeah, yeah. Like, Waterstones had the opportunity for, like, you know, to have a new premise, like they would pay for the shop to be fitted. You know, like with Crossrail, like they, they, you're knocking down 1924 Street. So, well, part of it is we'll pay to put you in a new premises, and they didn't bother. Come <laughs> and work with you, Steve. Imagine <laughs> if I'd never done that. This show would never leave all that out yet. Yeah, <laughs>